a foundational principle here at Sun River is that we teach, that we preach the whole counsel of God. All of scripture is inspired by God. And it is my personal desire, as well as our leadership, that you, whether you are new here or have been here for a long time, know the truth, the truth about Jesus, the truth about eternal life. And I know personally in my relationships with many of you, there are four groups here on a Sunday morning. And I want you all to know you're welcome. There is the first group. It's the group that they're just not quite sure. They're not convinced. They're the skeptic. And you are welcome. I'm glad you've carved out the time to come. And my encouragement to you is that you will come to the pursuit of truth with balance, not bias. There are some of you that are seeking and you're, you're, you're open to the truth about Jesus and I'm grateful that you are here as well. Some may be in the category of the stumbler. One foot in, one foot out, tries real hard and stumbles and then pulls back. And then the other group is the sold out group. And every one of these groups will struggle in some way, shape, or form through different phases of life with barriers that keep you from truly believing in Jesus. So grab your Bibles, and let's go to the Gospel of John, a foundational book in the Bible on belief in the truth about Jesus. There is... A proper way, there is a right way to look. I want to tell you about a a friend of mine who I know very, very, very well, who was raised with this notion that there is a right way to look. It started at age six when his teacher said to him, Look, do, do you want to go to heaven? Or do you want to go to hell? After explaining what heaven is and explaining what hell is, the six-year-old looked at his teacher and said, heaven, because what six-year-old child is going to say, you know, I'm thinking hell would be a good place to go. No, it doesn't happen. Your your parents are going to be in heaven. Is that where you want to go? Yeah. And then his parents said, look, you, you, you say that you believe in Jesus, but, but you got to be baptized. you got to make a public profession. And so he was baptized a few years later. People would pay top dollar to see that video. It does not exist. Then his mom said, hey, look. Look, young man. Actually, she, she used the word do. You can write that in your notes and use that later if you want. Look, you love Jesus. You've got to memorize the Bible. You've got to be in Awana. You've got to be there every week, and you've got to get your little badges all over your vest and your whirly hat or whatever it was. I'm trying to forget these memories, but that's what my mom said to me. And then my camp speaker said, look, if you really make a decision for Christ, you have to pray this prayer. You've got to come down. You've got to pray this, and you've got to spend the rest of your life serving other people. And then my dad said, hey, look, buddy, you got to go to Bible college. You got to go to Bible college. You got to study the Bible. 
After one year of Bible college, you can go anywhere else you want. 22 years of my life looking like a Christian, but there was something missing. Deep down, there was selfishness by my shame and guilt. Years of, look, 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 look right, act right, do right. And then the truth was revealed in crisis, because this is how it works. A minor crisis in somebody that is looking the part but really isn't walking the part is this disdain or this competition towards others. When my life wasn't going right, I wasn't selfless like Jesus. I was selfish. Crisis has this way of revealing the truth of a person's heart. I was losing everything that mattered to to me, everything that made me look good in front of everybody else. Started to blame others for my world falling apart. Heidi said, look, buddy, you care more about basketball and yourself than you do me. She was right. My basketball coach said, hey, look, Bud, there's only one door for you on this team. Don't let it hit you on the way out. My brother said, hey, you can talk the talk, Andy, but you don't walk the walk. At age 22, by God's grace, he opened my eyes to the fact that I was looking in all the wrong places. I had given in over the years to a me-centered gospel not a theocentric or a God-centered gospel. I made God look good in my own mind. And when my life didn't work out the way I wanted because I was the center, I started to blame other people and God. Now, I'm being vulnerable here, but if we're all honest, I bet you many of you have experienced or have those same feelings. Amen, not all by myself. (laughs) You see, I realized by God's grace that I had started off wrong. It wasn't anybody's fault, necessarily. Everything that I was told was true and right, but not complete. There were significant factors missing. I remember as I had this phase in my life where I was in the depths of despair because everything I'd worked hard for was taken from me, that I was the problem. And I remember asking God to forgive me. I remember asking Heidi to forgive me. I remember asking my basketball team to forgive me and my family. And it was in that moment that I began the process of surrendering my life fully to Christ. But I need you to know that it wasn't something on the outside that I necessarily did to change that. It was something by God's grace that he was doing to transform me on the inside. You see, I discovered by God's grace alone, not by my effort, the difference between religion, which was a belief barrier for me and still has the potential to be a belief barrier for me, and regeneration, 
being transformed. You see, there's a significant difference between these two. And we, you and I, need to see from Scripture the difference between the two so that we don't fall victim to this catastrophic belief barrier. Belief barriers, and specifically the one of religion or religiosity, is like artificial flavors. Have you ever looked up the definition of an artificial flavor? We consume these every day almost without realizing it. Listen, an artificial flavor is an additive designed to mimic the taste of the natural ingredients. That is a clear definition of religiosity. It goes on to say there are a cost-effective way of manufacturing or manufacturers to make something taste like a strawberry without actually using any real strawberry. It's a cost-effective way. That is religiosity. It doesn't cost me anything. I just got to act the part, be the pipe, but I don't have to sacrifice my will or my desire or my life. Jesus just loves me so much just the way that I am that he came and he died and now I can live my life the way I want. And so, but I know I got to check some boxes, so I'm going to go to church, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray. So right off the bat as we start this series, if you go on your own time and you read John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, you see at the beginning of this gospel that there are catastrophic dangers to artificial belief in the Bible. And it's all over the Bible, not just in the chapter of John or the gospel of John. Many of you have heard, and we'll be referencing this later in the series, Matthew 7, where there's this group of people who pray prayers in Jesus' name. They go on missions trip. They serve the poor in Jesus' name. They even do miraculous things in Jesus' name. I was a, a part and am drawn into that group very naturally, but Jesus says, depart from me, you doer of iniquity. Even though they weren't doing the bad things, they were doing the right things, but there wasn't a personal relationship. And the personal relationship was, God, I am the center of my life. So personally, I'm going to rub the genie lamp and you give me everything I want and I'm going to work hard to prove your grace. It's not biblical. You can read Luke chapter 8, parable of the seeds. There's a group of people in this parable that get excited about their faith, bring people to church, start to read the Bible, and again, it's the same game plan. In a pastor's conference, David Platt talks about these verses in the New Testament when he says Jesus is not talking in Matthew chapter 7 or in John chapter 3 about irreligious pagans, atheists, or agnostics. He's talking about Deeply, devoutly religious people who are deluded into thinking that they are saved when they are not. He's talking about men and women who will be shocked one day to find that though they were on the narrow road that leads to heaven, These people believed they were born again, but they weren't. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, surveys on this rock and shock pastors 
recent survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, it's the university I went to, found that American adults today have increasingly adopted a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. 52% who say they're followers of Jesus also believe they have to earn their way to heaven. The study went on to say, despite the fact that their church doctrine says eternal salvation only comes by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, it is not of your works. The question presented in John as we look at this first belief barrier, is what kind of belief saves? This is an eternally important question. You, you and I have to reflect on this and allow God's word to open our eyes to the fact that maybe this is a belief barrier to truly following Jesus. We have accepted a culture where millions are comfortable calling themselves a Christian when they're not truly following or disciples of Jesus. And so in John chapter 3, God in his authoritative inspired voice to you and to I and to all humanity is going to give a description of saving grace. The outline is very simple to follow. It is a pastor's dream because it's just so simple. Five simple words. I'm sorry, six simple words. Introduction, inquiry, insight, illustration, indictment, instruction. There it is. That's the sermon outline. We're going to introduce a man with a belief barrier who approaches Jesus with an inquiry after receiving insight with two illustrations and an indictment. Jesus gives the man clear instruction. Are you ready? Let's go to John chapter 3. Now there was a man, a Pharisee, named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This is where we are introduced to a man who was a devout religious man and very confused in his faith. He was a Pharisee. This word Pharisee means separated one. Pharisees had become a tight-knit band of brothers with political and religious influence. They had earned the respect of their fellow Jews. They were, listen, scrupulous expositors of the law. They knew the Bible. They wrote the Awana curriculum. If you don't know what Awana is, it's this old school children memorizing script. Anybody? Am I all by myself? Raise your hand. Okay. It, these guys wrote the book on that. And they studied the law, and then they wrote books to help people follow the law. For example, everyone was supposed to follow the Sabbath. Exodus 20 lists out this day of rest. And so everyone could follow and apply this rule in their culture, the the importance of a day of rest, 
the Pharisaic rabbis added a long list of specific regulations to help you keep Sunday special. This oral tradition that the Pharisees put together is documented in the Mishnah. And it contains 24 chapters just on how to keep the Sabbath. Rules on top of rules on top of regulations. No one rivaled the Pharisees in being religious. Here we see, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, the danger of theology. Helmut Thielich wrote a little book, and I remember being given to it in seminary called A Little Exercise for Young Theologians. The premise of the book, in my words, is the danger of replacing the ruler and loving the ruler as opposed to loving the rules. And seminary has this capability. The study of theology can get men and women to love the rules and forget about the one that wrote the rules and the affection and love for the rules. It was David Hay who said to me, Andy, you need to go to seminary. I'm good. I'm just going to do youth ministry for the rest of my life. He says, that's why you need to go to youth ministry or you need to go to seminary. And he said, but be careful because for many pastors, seminary becomes cemetery. Nicodemus was also a ruler of the Jews by the first century when Rome dominated Israel, the high priest shared power with a council of about 70 men who were experienced statemen, so to speak, noble religious figures. This ruling council of, quote, elders were called the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus is a part of this elite group. So not only was Nicodemus devoutly religious, but he was also a leader of religious men. It is Nicodemus that approaches Jesus with an inquiry, a question. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Many of you have probably heard sermons or heard commentaries talk about this or expositors, preachers. The fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of darkness suggests that there was a concern about being seen with him. He's supposed to know the answer to these questions, but he comes to Jesus at night. I actually think and believe with some of the other commentaries that that's not why Jesus came or why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. When you read this, you see that he calls Jesus rabbi, which is a term of respect and authority when one religious person calls another religious person that. Rabbi. Rabbi, this word shows that there is dignity and respect. It is possible that he came out of respect for Jesus because he didn't want to have a public issue. But he did have questions. He comes to him at night. I think the more significant thing to pick up here is the image of night and darkness, which are all throughout the book of John and are always terrifying and shocking. We'll learn more about this later. He comes to him at night. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. 
That's interesting. He's affirming Jesus is special. He says, Rabbi, you look different. You you look different than everybody else. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You look right. You do the right things. God is clearly with you. And Jesus quickly cuts straight to the point and gets to the heart of the matter. He receives the inquiry and then returns it with insight. Jesus gives him clear insight. He says, Jesus answers, verse 3, truly, truly. By the way, this truly, truly comes up three times in the scriptures we're looking at. It's only found in the gospel of John. The words truly, truly translated verily, verily, they appear in this gospel and it carries a serious tone. Jesus is speaking him right in the eyes, to him right in the eyes, and he's saying, listen up. Look, buddy. This is a serious tone. And it carries veracity and significance to what he's getting ready to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot See the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is challenging this religious leader, this elite scholar, this theologian with a theological declaration. The implications of Jesus' words for Nicodemus must have been shocking. You see, all of his life rests on the dignity of observing the law and the rituals of Judaism. And now Jesus calls him to forsake all and start over, to abandon an entire system of works righteousness in which he had placed his hope to realize that human effort was powerless to save, that had to be offensive to Nicodemus. Richard Lenski, who wrote many New Testament commentaries before he passed, wrote these words about Jesus' insight to Nicodemus' question. Jesus' words regarding new birth shatter once for all every Supposed excellence of man's attainment, all merit of human deeds, all prerogatives of natural birth or station. Spiritual birth is something one undergoes, not something one produces. As an effect, as, or as our effect has nothing to do with our natural conception and birth, regeneration is not a work of ours. What a blow to Nicodemus. His being a Jew gave him no part in the kingdom. His being a Pharisee esteemed holier than other people availed him nothing. 
His membership in the Sanhedrin and his fame as one of its scribes went for naught. This rabbi from Galilee calmly tells him that he is not yet in the kingdom, all of which he built his hopes throughout a long, arduous life here, sank into ruins. And he finishes by saying, and became a little worthless heap of ash. This Greek word translated again, anothen, means from above, born from above. Rebirth is passing from one kind of life, one environment to another. To be born again is to be born from above. It means that you have been transformed from the inside out. And religiosity is this deception that you can do all these things to transform you from the outside in. And it doesn't work. I don't want you to forget, though, as we move on, that Nicodemus is not an idiot. He's not an ignorant man. He is a brilliant, studied theologian, and he is skilled in the art of rhetoric and debate. He knows the Old Testament. He's probably memorized the Torah and most of the Tanakh, most of the Old Testament, by heart. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy as well as most of the Old Testament. So as we read verse 4, take off the lens of, man, Nicodemus is an idiot, because he's not. you got to understand what he's saying. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? First look, you may think, that is the dumbest thing an adult man would ever say. That doesn't make sense. That's not logical. But in a sense, what Nicodemus is saying is what a ludicrous and outrageous proposition, Rabbi Yeshua. That doesn't even make sense. In the ancient world, Jews called Gentile converts to Judaism newborn children. So when we close the gap of the culture, we're going to see a little bit different insight into what's going possibly through the mind of this religious man named Nicodemus. Gentiles that were converted to Judaism were called newborn children or new sons of the covenant. Nicodemus didn't understand Jesus' imagery. He objected the idea. This doesn't even make sense. That's not even logical. He objected the idea that only Gentile converts could be part of the kingdom of God. This would leave Jews, the very people of God, that God had preserved throughout history, over the centuries, out of all of the promises. It didn't equate. So Jesus needs to give him a couple of illustrations before he gives him direct insight. The first illustration, verse 5, Jesus answered again, truly, truly, look, buddy, listen up. 
I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' first illustration reveals the radical difference between religion and regeneration, being reborn. The second illustration, which we'll see in just a few verses, verses 14 and 15, explain how regeneration works. But right now, he's delineating the difference between religion and regeneration. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. One commentary puts it this way, flesh produces flesh, spirit produces spirit. Spiritual life is a mystery to the physical realm. It cannot be attained through physical means. The spirit of God is the source of all spiritual life. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is referencing the flesh and water that is talked about in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, where the prophet says this, From God's word, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. What Jesus is saying is we need to be washed from the inside out. We need to be made new. We need a new heart. Heart. A new love for God that replaces our love for ourselves. God's not just after obedience. He's after a whole new kind of obedience. An obedience that grows out of affection for the creator. He goes on in verse 7. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8 is where he starts to give some insight. This is where he gives some deep theological insight. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. J. Vernon McGee says that Jesus is saying you can't tell where the wind comes from and you can't tell where it is going. The air circulates and the winds are something that man cannot and doesn't control. The wind blows where it wills. We cannot detour it. We cannot change it. God causes us 
to be born again. In verse 9, Nicodemus says to him in response to this insight, how can these things be? How can these things happen? This is where Jesus moves into an indictment against Nicodemus. Jesus answered him and says, you are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, here it is again. Look, dude, listen, pay attention. You're supposed to be close to God. You're supposed to have this all figured out. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Do you notice the progression here? The indictment is about how he's looking and what he's looking at. He sees Jesus doing miracles and he says, you got to be close to God because you're doing some really cool stuff. You look amazing. The progression, you do not understand, verse 10. You do not receive or accept, verse 11. How will you believe, verse 12? You're looking in all the wrong places. I am the truth. I am the way. This is something I do in you. Regeneration has to take place. And then he gives his final illustration with clear instruction on how regeneration takes place. This is the part that as we read I want to encourage you to search your heart. You know your thoughts. You know your intentions. He gives an illustration that defines exactly how we're supposed to respond to the truth about Jesus. I remember feeling this at the age of 22. There was times in my life where I walked away from the faith because things didn't make sense logically to me. And I realized that I was looking at them through my own filter. Jesus gives an illustration that Nicodemus knew very, very well. He had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He couldn't be an elite Pharisee without that. And so Jesus reverts back to Numbers 21, a story that the Jews knew very well. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus, again, draws from a very familiar episode in the history of the Israelites. He does this to illustrate how regeneration takes place in a person's life. The Israelites 
had experienced God's miraculous deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. God himself had led them and into the wilderness and leading them into the promised land. And then they begin to grumble and complain. They forget God's deliverance, God's love for them. And they complain and they blaspheme, you read it, against God's name. And eventually God decides to discipline his disbelieving, disobedient children with affliction from venomous snakes. And as the people begin to die, Moses prays for deliverance. And in mercy, the Lord instructs him to make a bronze snake and set it on a pole so that all those who are bitten could look up at it. And he promised that when a person looked at the bronze snake, their affliction from the venom would go away. It would lose its sting, the sting of death. It's this picture, the snake, the serpent who brought sin into the world being lifted up and all that sin being put on Jesus himself, taking away the sins of the whole world and those who look and believe will be saved. Nicodemus is this religious man. Jesus is telling him, despite all your good works, despite all your learning, despite all your church attendance, all your religious ritual, you're a dead man in your sin. And the passage doesn't give us here indication that Nicodemus believed in this moment. But what's ex- very amazing is that we see Nicodemus, his life changes. John chapter 7 and John chapter 9, he begins to defend Jesus. He begins to proclaim the truth about Jesus. He goes with Joseph of Arimathea to get the body and put it in the tomb. Nicodemus came to understand sovereign grace and experience the reality of new birth. That's why he became a witness to the gospel. Listen, the gospel, as clear as I can say it, that I didn't get as a young kid, starts with bad news. It starts with bad. The gospel is good news, but it begins with bad news. And this is where we miss it. Because we never want to grapple with the bad news. We want to, in our culture, doesn't want to make people feel guilty and full of shame. But it is sin that separates us from God. Jesus is saying, your sin has cut you off from God and your effort can't close that chasm. You're spiritually dead. You see, sin is an eye problem. That's why we look in all the wrong places. Sin is an eye problem. I want to be in charge. I want to serve myself. I want everybody else to serve me. I want all the glory. I want to be the primary point in my life and everyone else, their life as well. I want to be the center. 
I want to be in charge of my life. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. And when God says, no, you got to deny yourself, I don't want to do that. My agenda, my interests. This is why we must be born again. Do you realize what Jesus just did in this story? In the first century and still today, the religious people, they're the ones that everybody views as the closest to God. You see that? And Jesus flips that. He's like, you got to start all over. What? You're not close to God. But I'm doing all these things. You have to completely go back and start from the beginning. It would be like Zach going, hey, what do I have to do to win the Masters tournament, which is going on, and I'm two days behind, so don't tell me anything. You got to work hard. You got to practice. You got to do this illustration isn't perfect, but I'm throwing it in there anyway. You got to work hard, and the harder you work, you can get there. And it's like Jesus coming to Zach and saying, actually, no, you got to start all over and do Frisbee golf. Just kidding. He loves to get the opportunity to talk in church. I thought about not saying that, but regeneration occurs through belief. It was Francis Schaeffer who, when asked, hey, if you only had one hour to share the gospel with somebody on a train, what would you do? He said, I'd spend the first 50 minutes talking about all the bad stuff, all the sin, and let them see that they are in trouble, they need saved, and then the last five to ten minutes sharing the gospel. You believe that Jesus saves and you look to him, not anywhere else. You look. Charles Spurgeon talks about his conversion story. He became a bulldog preacher. I love reading Spurgeon. He talks about being in a winter storm when he was stranded. And so he saw a a church and he decides to go to this church. The pastor wasn't able to make it because of the snowstorm. So he's sitting there and he's not sure. He's, he's trying to figure out faith and he's not quite a full believer yet. He says this thin man, probably a shoemaker, he talks about him, takes the stage and Spurgeon says he's not educated. He doesn't pronounce words right. But nobody else is there to preach the sermon so he just opens up his Bible And he begins to preach. And the text he's preaching on is Isaiah 45, which says, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And then this preacher says, Dear friends, this is a very simple text. By the way, this is Spurgeon's writing. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting a foot or a finger. You just look. Spurgeon had explained that the man was not educated, so didn't pronounce words in proper form. Reminds me of myself. You may be the biggest fool, never gone to college, and yet you can look. A man needeth not be worth a thousand a year or read a thousand a year to books to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Eh? 
It's supposed to be an accent, I guess. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but there is no use looking there. You've never found any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ, the preacher says. The text says, look unto me. How do you look to Christ? You look to Christ. He's sweating drops of blood for you. You look unto Christ. He's hanging on the cross for you. You look to Christ. He's buried. He's dead and buried. You look to Christ. He's risen again. He's ascended to heaven. You look to Christ. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The pastor goes on to say, poor sinner, look to Christ. And then the pastor looks directly at Spurgeon sitting in the back. He said there was only 10 people there, so he stood out as a visitor. Looks right. I'm, not, I'm trying not to look at anybody right now because I don't want to scare you off. But he looks right at Spurgeon. He says, young man, look to Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation a simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Jesus and you will be saved. Just look to Christ. This is the theme of the book of John. When John says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See him, look at him in faith and live. Friends, family, brothers and sisters, this is your choice. No one is stopping you except for yourself from looking to Jesus. Simply believe and look to him and allow his spirit to transform your eternity. As we close, I want to invite you to stand for the public reading of scripture. These are the verses that we are encouraging you to spend the next nine weeks memorizing together. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. These are God's very words. This is the voice of God to you and I today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son of God and this is the judgment Light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest he, his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen in his works that his works have been carried out by God.